Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. The New York Historical Society recently introduced a must-listen-to podcast called For the Ages, exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Past conversations have included Pulitzer Prize winner Robert Caro offering a first-hand perspective on his writing process, Ron Chernow on his biography of Hamilton and his involvement with the musical, award-winning author Lillian Faderman discussing the history of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, which continues to this day. H.W. Brands on John Brown and Lincoln, the Zealot and the Emancipator, Joanne Freeman on violence in Congress leading up to the Civil War, through the eyes of journalist Benjamin Brown French, and New York Times Chief White House Correspondent Peter Baker on the life and legacy of James Baker, one of the most influential power brokers in American history. That's For the Ages, from David M. Rubenstein and the New York Historical Society. Available on Apple and Spotify, new episodes every week. Episode 379 of The Bowery Boys. How Chelsea became a neighborhood. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers, and Happy New Year, Greg. Happy New Year. Well, we thought that we would start the new year off with a good old-fashioned neighborhood story. We're talking about Chelsea, the Manhattan neighborhood with a history that traces back to the colonial era of New York City. The original Chelsea was not a neighborhood. In fact, it was an 18th century colonial estate with a farm, rolling meadows, apple orchards, and even a stately manor called Chelsea House. So the question that we are asking today is how Chelsea, the estate, became Chelsea, the neighborhood. And the man behind that transformation will be familiar to some of you, Clement Clark Moore who spent a lot of time in this manor here, in his family's country house. And if you are familiar with his name, it's probably because of the iconic poem, and I don't use that word lightly, (laughs) it is iconic, that he wrote A Visit from St. Nicholas, which begins, 
"'Twas the night before Christmas." Now, when you think of Chelsea, the neighborhood today, you probably think of the High Line or the Chelsea Hotel or an art gallery or perhaps even one of those festive restaurants down on 8th Avenue or or maybe even a gay bar, perhaps. <laughs> Past or present. Yes. <laughs> the, what, let's see. Actually, what still is open? Barracuda, yes. for example? Yes, open. Yep. G Lounge? Uh, no, I think that's been closed for a few years. How about Splash? Closed for even longer, I'm afraid. (laughs) But man, that was a fun bar. What does any of that Chelsea have to do with Clement Clark Moore? Well, I think I met a go-go boy named Clement at Splash. But but beyond that, (laughs) the connection is actually Moore's unique and innovative style development, which he applied when transforming his estate in the 1820s into a charming little place called Chelsea Square. Believe it or not, many aspects of that initial development by Moore are still with us today. So in the first half of our show today, then, we'll be telling the story of Clement Clark Moore, his country estate, and how he developed it then into lots that he sold off. And in the second half, we'll see how the progress of the city during the late 19th century and in the 20th century, how this added new dimensions to the streets surrounding Chelsea Square. This is a tale featuring many stories that we've already shared on our show in the past, from the meatpacking district to the Chelsea Piers. So this will be a broad overview of Chelsea history in this later period. So join us on this sleigh ride to Clement Clark Moore's country estate and the story of how Chelsea became a neighborhood. All right, Greg. Well, as we've just sort of hinted at, Chelsea can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. And even its borders, its geographical borders can be defined differently by different people. So can you please try to situate us here? Where exactly is Chelsea in Manhattan? Okay. Chelsea is a Manhattan neighborhood north of Greenwich Village and south of of Midtown Manhattan on the island's west side. But perhaps like a good watercolor here that might have been painted at the Chelsea Hotel, the edges of Chelsea are just a little blurred. Actually, Keith Williams of Curb Magazine wrote a great article on Chelsea history from a few years ago with the headline, The 200-Year History of Chelsea's Ever-Expanding Borders. which I think kind of sums up the problem, but pinpoints a major theme that we're discussing today. True, but at least the western border seems pretty clear, right? Um, maybe. You know, of course, the western border is the shoreline of the Hudson River. However, because of the popularity of the High Line, which opened as an elevated park in 2009... The area around there is very highly developed and is sometimes considered a distinct neighborhood of its own. And to its south, the southern border of Chelsea then, you just mentioned it's above Greenwich Village, but it's generally agreed to be 14th Street. Mm-hmm. Although the western section of 14th Street takes us into the Meatpacking District, which is actually its own neighborhood today. We're painting a very tricky picture here, aren't we? And so the eastern end of Chelsea is 6th Avenue, where its commercial ventures kind of blur in with what's called the Flatiron District today. And finally, my favorite part, the northern end 
Tom, if you were to ask a person on the street, where might they say Chelsea's northern border is? Well, I know a lot of people out there would just instinctively say 23rd Street. Because it's a main commercial thoroughfare, right? Lined with restaurants. And it's also where the Chelsea Hotel is. So, But Chelsea really extends north further up the island, up to about 30th Street or 34th Street. Although then that is tricky these days because few people would say Penn Station is located in Chelsea. And then now you have the Hudson Yards development over there, and that's creating its own new vibe. Okay, well, that was really clear. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, no. I mean, obviously, obviously the neighborhood's borders are pretty hazy. Yes, but it's actually this haziness or this lack of clarity that is a major component to its history. Because essentially, Chelsea began as this mid-19th century planned development that, because of where it was situated on Manhattan Island, had to conform rapidly to the industrial and commercial needs of the city surrounding it. But before it was this 19th century development, it was just a country estate, right? During the Mm -hmm. colonial times, this was countryside outside the city borders. So let's rewind the story all the way back. Yes, actually, back to Sapokanakin, which was a trading settlement and a village for the native Lenape, which was situated along the western shore and around this area, or where Gansevoort Street is today in the meatpacking district. Well, during the Dutch period, the Lenape were displaced by Dutch farmers, and then in 1664... The Dutch were then sent packing by the English, who renamed the New Amsterdam settlement New York. And then what was here during the colonial period? Well, keep in mind, in the early 18th century era, the city was far south of this area. And these more bucolic lands around here were carved into county seats and estates owned by prominent British dignitaries. For instance, the estate of Greenwich controlled by Sir Peter Warren, which is, of course, today's Greenwich Village. But then north of that, and pertinent to our story today, sat the estate of another British military officer, Major Thomas Clark, a veteran of the French and Indian Wars. So he purchased 94 acres in the area today between 21st and 24th Street, between 8th Avenue and over to the Hudson River. The shoreline, by the way, was just west of today's 10th Avenue, so in a little different place. Anyway, Clark named the farm Chelsea after the Royal Hospital Chelsea, which was a home for retired veterans from the British Army in London. The hospital, of course, takes its name from the neighborhood of Chelsea in London, a name which traces back to Old English history, a name which means Chalk Landing Place, or Chalk Wharf. Anyway, Clark himself was retiring from service, thus he called his newly developed estate here Chelsea. Ah, his Chelsea, his own Mm -hmm. retirement home. And at the center then of this estate, he built himself a fine home, a mansion really. Where exactly was that located? It was located just southwest of today's corner of 9th Avenue and 23rd Street. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1774, that first home burnt down and was replaced with a much larger and sturdier mansion upon a hill called Chelsea House. 
overlooking the grounds with gardens and orchards on the southern end. And this was an actual farm as well as just a country escape? Yes, a farm. You know, they produced food both for their household and for sale at the markets. And like so many colonial estate owners at this time, the Clarks used slave labor. In fact, enslaved people would be kept on the property through the generations until slavery was at last abolished in New York and the final enslaved people freed in 1827. So Clark here was a British officer, but after the Revolutionary War, his family decided to actually stay put in the United States. He didn't take off and return back to England or or flee to Canada. Yeah, it's interesting. Thomas Clark's wife, Mary, actually stayed on here after her husband died because she had come to be more sympathetic with this new American cause. Then, when she passed away in 1802, the house and estate were then passed to her daughter, Charity, and her husband, Benjamin Moore, a rector from Trinity Church who had risen to become a bishop of the Episcopal Church. He was also the president of King's College by this time, during the years when it would change its name to Columbia College. Today, that's your alma mater, Columbia University. Located down by Trinity and City Hall. Yes, and although Moore was obviously very active down there in New York, the family kept on here at Chelsea as a seasonal residence. And this estate then would be passed on to their children. Right, or rather, child. They only had one, but you only need one if that child happens to be Clement Clark Moore. Now, Moore was born in 1779. Clement would, of course, grow up in a life of wealth and well-educated at King's College. As a young man, he was politically aligned with the party of Alexander Hamilton, who was a family friend, aligned with the Federalist Party. And in 1804, in fact, the year that Hamilton was killed in a duel, Clement Clark Moore wrote a scathing attack against Hamilton's foe, Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, just happened to be the president of the United States at that time. It's interesting to think of more friendly with all of these people, these founding fathers. In a way, Clement Clark Moore was practically a founding father himself. Yeah, well, at least in terms of American religion, he became a noted religious scholar and writer then, while secure, of course, in the comforts of wealth. In 1813, he married Catherine Elizabeth Taylor, related to the well-connected Van Cortland family. And then they would go on to have nine children who would then go on to live here at the Chelsea estate. So Clement married in 1813, which was two years, of course, after the passage of the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, which would carve up the island into avenues and streets. So certainly the city was was rapidly catching up with his little idyllic countryside (laughs) escape. Yeah, that grid would eventually cut all of these estates into plots in a most indelicate and obliterating fashion. And Moore was a huge critic of this at first. Um, In 1818, he published a pamphlet Mm -hmm. back in the days when they published pamphlets in opposition, declaring, quote, Nothing is to be left unmolested which does not coincide with the street commissioner's plummet and level. 
These are men who would have cut down the seven hills of Rome, unquote. That said, he did allow the city to build 8th, 9th, and 10th avenues through his property, of which he profited, of course, quite handsomely. And meanwhile, his family house was still standing there, although hardly remote anymore. (laughs) Right. In fact, he was quite vexed all the time by all the sudden intrusion into his family life here, complaining to the newspapers that ruffians from the city were disturbing his orchards and his gardens. On the plus side, though, it was these very roads which allowed Moore to head to market. You know, the Moore family to head to market on their sleigh on a winter's afternoon. And it was one of these very trips which inspired Clement Clark Moore to pen the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, first published anonymously in December of 1823. Which begins, of course, "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." And Tom, that house mentioned in the poem, is most likely Chelsea House. And the children, nestled all snug in their beds, were Moore's children. And the mice were the Moore family mice. (laughs) They were. And the stockings. Well, anyway, the next time we come around to Christmas and you encounter that poem, just picture the whole thing taking place in Chelsea. But interestingly, around the same period, by the 1820s, His estate was not only carved into blocks by the commissioner's plan, but now he was selling off parcels of those blocks for development. Yeah, once he realized that he'd lost the fight against the commissioner's plan, he looked at this estate that was carved into these blocks in the 1820s. And according to author Samuel Patterson in his biography of Moore, called The Poet of Christmas Eve, Moore realized that development was really his only option. But, as you already noted, he was a learned man. He was a very religious man as well. And at about the same time, the Episcopal Church was establishing its own seminary. And it was discussing where that seminary should be located. And Moore was on the vestry of his family's local church, which was St. Luke's in the Fields over on Hudson Street, which was constructed in 1822 and is still there today. Hmm... If only they had a wealthy congregant who all of a sudden just had a lot of land on his hands. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Well, the seminary, called the General Theological Seminary, had been founded in 1817, but it had moved up to New Haven, Connecticut three years later, right? Get out of the bustle of the city. Mm -hmm. But then in 1821, a vestry member back down at Trinity Church in Manhattan named Jacob Sherrod left $60,000 for the construction of a seminary in New York City. So now they had the money, they just needed the land to move it back to New York. And it was at around this time then that Clement Clark Moore offered his church 60 lots for the seminary in the heart of his old estate. 60 building lots which comprises basically most of one city block from 20th Street to 21st Street. Exactly, and between 9th and 10th Avenues. Now, the first building of the seminary would open in 1827, and by the 1830s, Clark, or his business associates, were busy dividing up the building lots and and leasing them off. 
his business associates. So he had a company up here? Yeah. Well, back downtown at St. Luke's in the Fields, his church, he had become close friends with a carpenter named James Nicholas Wells, who actually built that lovely church. And the two of them would then go into business together, forming the Wells Real Estate Company, which would basically run the leasing of land up here on the Chelsea estate. He preferred to lease the land whenever possible, not sell it off. And as the neighborhood started to populate, he saw a need for a new neighborhood chapel because the first residents there had actually just been worshiping at the seminary with with seminary students. So he also provided land for that on 20th Street between 8th and 9th Avenues uh, for the construction of St. Peter's Chapel in 1831. The original Greek Revival Chapel wouldn't be sufficient And so a much larger Gothic-style church, St. Peter's Episcopal Church, would be constructed next to it and consecrated in 1838. Guess who served as the church's first organist? Clement Clark Moore, I assume? You got it. Ding, ding. (laughs) George Templeton Strong scribbled out in a nasty little tirade in his diary disparaging remarks about Moore's organ playing. Give him a break. He was a busy guy. And the church's parish hall, which was built just to the east of it in the 1850s, has been home to the Atlantic Theater Company since 1985. Well, this large new church that has just opened, I think, signals the fact that many more people are moving to the neighborhood. Of course, many of them the parishioners of that church. They were, even if the development of the neighborhood would be slowed down by the financial panic of 1837, which sent real estate prices tumbling. It even stalled the construction of St. Peter's Church. But the old Chelsea estate continued to be parceled off, leased by Wells, and quite notably, Moore was also setting rules to ensure quality construction, right? And ensure that only quality, quote-unquote, tenants moved in, noting that, quote, all kinds of nuisances will be prohibited. Hmm, so by nuisances... I'm assuming, you know, places like gambling, parlors, saloons, that sort of thing. Yes, although, of course, the saloons would certainly find their way to Chelsea (laughs) in due time, but not at the beginning. Homes were required to be two-story constructions on the side streets, three along the avenues. Uh, There were other regulations as well, especially around the seminary block, which formed what he called Chelsea Square, So it was called Chelsea Square, even though it wasn't like an actual public square, like Washington Square, for instance. Right. The square itself was occupied by the seminary. Although the land was wide open, it was easily traversed. You know, residents could stroll under its trees and along its gently sloping hill. The square and this whole area still sounds like it's quite lovely at this time. Well, to make it even lovelier, builders of homes on 20th streets and 21st streets around the square, facing the square, were required to include 10-foot deep open spaces in front of their homes, open courts. According to the Chelsea Historical Designation Report, quote, the open space was to remain unobstructed forever, except for the necessary steps for entrance platforms, pedestals, iron fences, and railings connected therewith. So these setbacks actually complement the square across the street. Right, and they kind of make the whole street breathe a little bit more. They open it up, make you focus, you know, across the street on the square. 
as the designation report notes, in a similar way that the homes on Waverly Place along the north side of Washington Square Park did, Mm -hmm. you know, and they date from around the same time. Moore also required the planting of trees. He mandated that houses had to touch each other, you know, so that there there wouldn't be any room for any alleyways going back to, you know, some ugly stables or back houses or anything like that. So these early homes, especially around here, were just very beautiful and elegant. Many were in the, the Greek revival style. Many of them still stand today. And throughout the 1840s and 50s, other beautiful homes would be constructed in the Italianate style, along with smaller and less expensive homes, you know, as the neighborhood would kind of fill in. What's interesting is this filling in, so to speak, was with more modest dwellings, unlike places like Gramercy Park, of course. Right, yeah. Moore and Wells um, had hoped that Chelsea Square would become the next hot neighborhood for New York's wealthiest families. But by the 1850s, You know, those families were actually being drawn to the center of the island along Fifth Avenue. And meanwhile, over here, along the streets surrounding Chelsea Square, these were lovely homes, but it would also become a neighborhood for middle class, upper middle class families who could really afford to move up the island and away from, you know, all the congestion downtown. Although there were some really notable attempts at going upscale, probably the most prominent of those being in the mid-1840s when Moore and Wells leased the entire north side of 23rd Street from 9th Avenue to 10th Avenue to a builder named William Torrey for the development of a project he called London Terrace. It was a line of attractive Greek revival homes that were nestled behind beautifully designed gardens. And this did manage to attract some notable names at the time, including Samuel Lord of the Lord & Taylor department store. Good Lord! <laughs> the, the, original, Lord the original London Terrace, here on the spot of the Chelsea estate. London Terrace, take one, from the 1840s. What's interesting, sort of pulling back, is there's already different kinds of development happening around Chelsea Square that aren't necessarily a part of this original Moore vision. Yeah, if we kind of zoom out a bit from Chelsea to the greater Chelsea area, you know, there are different enclaves. There's a Scottish enclave called Paisley Place around 7th Avenue and 17th Street. There are other pockets in the area of Italians, Germans, Irish, French residents. And these groups then would have their own churches, including St. Columba's Catholic Church on West 25th between 8th and 9th, which formed in 1845. And it served many of the Irish Americans who were working over on the nearby docks. The Church of St. Vincent de Paul uh, formed in the 1840s downtown, but then would move up to 23rd Street in the 1860s to serve the neighborhood's French community. And honestly, by the mid-19th century, it's actually easier to get here from other places. Yeah, there had been carriages and omnibuses serving the area. But in 1852, Chelsea got service from the 8th Avenue Street Railway, Mm -hmm. which consisted of, you know, we've talked about on other shows, these were horses pulling trolleys along rails down the middle of the avenue, uh, which sounds slow, but it was an improvement. Mm -hmm. And it made the area more accessible and attractive to buyers. Hmm, I wonder what Moore's thoughts were on this latest transit option, bringing more and more people into his district. 
One thing that definitely did not make him happy was Commodore Vanderbilt's new train line, which ran directly on 10th Avenue and started service, you know, down the middle of the avenue in 1847 on its way down to St. John's Terminal. That area then along 10th Avenue, with the shallow waters of the Hudson just to its west, became much more industrial with manufacturing, but also with shipping and piers and warehouses. And this new train line, you know, down the avenue, it was an incredibly dangerous addition to the neighborhood. And it was loud and it was filthy. And it only gets louder and filthier. I'll I'll speak about that in a second. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait. But a big change would take place in the late 1860s when the 9th Avenue Elevated Railroad started chugging along over 9th Avenue with a stop here at 23rd Street, basically at Chelsea House. So by the 1860s, by the time of the Civil War here, Chelsea Square and the surrounding developments of Chelsea was being absorbed into the rest of the city, kind of swallowed up. Imagine how complicated and strange that was for Clement Clark Moore, who had literally seen everything change in his lifetime. And it kept changing. According to the book, The Poet of Christmas Eve, when the city wanted to enlarge Manhattan west of 10th Avenue in the 1850s, Moore demolished his old estate atop the hill, Chelsea House, and leveled the land, leveled the hill down to street level, throwing the dirt into the shallow waters of the Hudson just west of 10th Avenue for landfill. Well, that's one way to get rid of it, I suppose. Just make more (laughs) land elsewhere with it. Yeah, and then he constructed a new Chelsea House for himself at the southwest corner of 23rd and 9th. Clement Clark Moore would spend his last days here in the new Chelsea House. And in July of 1863, he journeyed up to Newport, Rhode Island to visit his daughter, where he died on July 10th, 1863. He was 83 years old. And this was just days before New York City would erupt into the Civil War draft riots. His will divided up his Chelsea estate among his six surviving children and one granddaughter. Moore would be buried back down at St. Luke's in the Fields on Hudson Street, although his body would then be transferred to Trinity Cemetery uptown in 1889. The godfather of Chelsea was gone, but the story of Chelsea, in a way, was just getting started. We'll watch Chelsea become a neighborhood right after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. 
In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. So the Elevated Railroad is obviously a game changer for all of New York, of course. And it also brings different kinds of changes or represents the change that's about to happen around Chelsea Square. In fact, most of what I'll be speaking about next occurs in what we might call today the Chelsea Expanded Borders, all around the area of old Chelsea Square and the seminary. Well, certainly there was a lot of change, tumultuous change, along the western edge of Mm -hmm. Chelsea, along the shoreline. As you previously inferred, that had already started moving in, thanks, of course, to the Hudson River Railroad and all those types of industries. But after the Civil War and into the Gilded Age here, much of Lower Manhattan's waterfront was dominated by industry. And that was the case here. All around that street-level railroad were industries of all sorts, from meatpacking plants to chemical and fuel plants. And of course, the danger of those tracks, of having those tracks at street level, would only increase as you get more and more people over here, of course, so much so that it would eventually be nicknamed Death Avenue. By the 1890s then, okay, so just 30 years after Moore had died, it was almost unrecognizable as any place that Moore would have known. And to be clear, Death Avenue, street-level railroad, came down 11th Avenue, and then it curved over given the contours of the island, to 10th Avenue. Right. So, and, and that dominated the life, basically, through Chelsea on those avenues. So, a very messy place. Then, by the start of the 20th century, came another major alteration as the city developed a massive pier structure catering to ocean liners. Infrastructure here on the shore, which then took the name of Moore's estate, the Chelsea Piers. The Chelsea Piers and all of the the world's largest vessels would dock here in the early 20th century. And in fact, wasn't it here in 1912 that the Titanic was meant to pull in to dock uh, yeah. on its fateful voyage? Yeah, in April of 1912. This is where the Titanic was supposed to be, as with so many other ocean liners. 
This is a world that more could not have imagined, right? And with these ocean liners and larger shipping vessels, that meant that the whole area, from an industrial standpoint, needed an upgrade. In particular, the district between 23rd and 34th Street along the waterfront, today referred to, from a preservation perspective, as West Chelsea. This area was almost entirely revamped at the start of the 20th century. The quote from the historic designation report, quote, By the 1920s, nearly all of the area's original small-scale buildings had been replaced with larger, more substantial industrial structures, unquote. And interestingly, by the 1910s, this area, actually the area between West 23rd and West 42nd Street, was a major center for New York's printing industry. Of course, what this means is that a majority of the structures in this area were massive warehouses. And you can really see this when you're walking through the area today or you know, at street level, or even better, if you're walking along the High Line mm-hmm. uh, to get a little more perspective on this upper western section of Chelsea, you really see how it is different and how it is so industrial. Yeah, you can feel a difference, right? Being surrounded by those types of buildings. Now, the High Line, by the way, that you mentioned, this was an elevated railroad that they built in this area as part of a larger revamping here in the 1930s, which, of course, got rid of that street-level railroad. You know, it leads further south into the area that we call the Meatpacking District today. But before we leave this messy industrial area, I have one more thing I want to point out, and that is one of my favorite New York buildings happens to be here. And you can actually see it from the High Line. It's called the Star at Lehigh Building, completed in 1931 at... 26th and 11th Avenue, designed by architects Russell G. and Walter M. Corey with Yatsuo Matsui. This is not an ordinary warehouse. It was at the, quote, forefront of modern architecture, according to its designation report, with unique curved edges and ribbon windows. Yeah, I love that building. You can really get a good view of it when you're walking along the Hudson River Greenway. Just the rows of windows. For a warehouse, it's glamorous kind of deco. Uh-huh. But yeah, you painted kind of a messy scene over here in West Chelsea. What is meanwhile happening south of the old Chelsea Square? Well, as you had already set up, there was a lot of housing stock being developed here for middle class and for working class families, most immigrants or the descendants of immigrants. This would, let's just say, continue apace into the late 19th century and early 20th century with an incredible variety of housing stock during this period, from tenements to townhouses to lodging houses. You know, I mean, I yesterday just walked through this area and I've been to Chelsea a few times in my life, um, but never like for the express purpose of let's just look at the housing. Let's just look at the buildings around here. And what's really extraordinary is... Most of the housing in Chelsea that was developed from the late 19th century and early 20th century is all kind of still there, even though it's not protected historically. And of course, it's a major component of creating this unique character that Chelsea has today. Yeah, there would be some mid-20th century giant housing projects and developments that were constructed that would wipe away many blocks mm-hmm. of from this period. 
But yeah, it's still block after block. It's kind of like Hell's Kitchen. There's just a yeah. lot of that original construction still there today. Mm-hmm. And this type of growth, of course, is happening throughout the city by the early 1920s. But the change here in Chelsea was nonetheless dramatic. Um, according to another Chelsea designation report, quote, during the early 1900s, the section of 8th Avenue between 17th and 23rd Street were considered the Bowery of the West Side because after dark, it was one of the liveliest and noisiest streets in town, unquote. Some things never change. <laughs> <laughs> Although they had changed quite a bit from Moore's day. I'm not sure he would have enjoyed a part of his land being called the Bowery of the West Side. (laughs) No, for him, I think that less was more. (laughs) So by the late 19th century and Gilded Age, Chelsea is sort of dominated by all kinds of housing, right? And also messy industry. But then to the east of it, it was a much different and even more glamorous scene. Oh, yeah. I think you're referring to the arrival of the department stores. And Ladies Mile. On 6th Avenue, specifically concentrated between 14th and 23rd Street. Or rather, we should say the middle class shopping district, as there were actually more luxury stores as part of Ladies Mile that were further east of here. But yes, these were wonderful, large department stores. Some of the largest stores in the entire world, places like Siegel Cooper, B. Altman, even Macy's, um, its New York presence began on Ladies Mile as early as 1858. And 6th Avenue also had its own elevated train, All of that in 6th Avenue certainly doesn't feel like it's part of Chelsea, right? It's too far east. Yeah, it seems like a different world. But those department stores had warehouses that were west of 6th Avenue. And of course, there were Mm. other businesses that were drawn to this district of stores, you know, namely garment shops and factories of different sorts. And many of those would reside in Chelsea. So then by the early 20th century, it's this really interesting mix of residences, both upscale and also even tenements, along with warehouses and industry and even commerce, all here in the same neighborhood. And Tom, that is not even counting the biggest surprise to come into Chelsea, courtesy 23rd Street, which literally cuts through the old Chelsea estate property. Now, after the Civil War and into the 1890s, 23rd Street served as a sort of amusement district with theaters and wax museums. In 1868, the impresario Samuel N. Pike even purchased a parcel of land from the Moore family at 8th Avenue and 23rd Street and built himself an opera house an elite destination that would later be owned by everyone's favorite financial scoundrels, Jim Fisk and Jay Gould. The Grand Opera House, which was a block away from London Terrace and a block away from the original Chelsea House. Mm -hmm. One even shudders to imagine what Clement Clark Moore would have thought of the Hotel Chelsea, which was built on 23rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues in the mid-1880s. 
Again, this reflected the housing needs of the growing neighborhood of Chelsea in the area, but it would soon become a symbol of American counterculture and a magnet for artists and writers and their entourages into the 20th century. Well, I don't know. I mean, Moore was a poet himself. He was a man of letters. He might have been really into it. He might have really... (laughs) He might have felt right at home, you know, kind of in an oversized chair in the lobby, (laughs) hanging out with Janis Joplin. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing some back with Dylan Thomas. Posing with Andy Warhol. We just don't know. One can only guess. Nor do we know how he would have felt, you know, about another development that ended up going up right at the beginning of the Great Depression in 1930, along 23rd Street between 9th and 10th, the new London Terrace. Oh, right. Back to the London Terrace. Take two, if you will, yeah. and obviously a much bigger take. Remember how more like to lease his land? The 85-year leases were up on the old London Terrace, and so his heirs leased the land to another developer in 1929. They demolished the old And they built anew for the construction of an even larger and much more elaborate London Terrace. Same spot, but this one contained 1,700 apartments. Quite a trendy address, even to this day. And I mean, in fact, it's, it's actually multiple buildings. It's not just one building. Right, there are 14 of them, each of which is between 18 and 19 stories tall. And for much more on this, we did a show back in March 2020 about Tilly Hart, the so-called holdout of London Terrace. It's episode 314. But by the 1930s and into the 40s, Chelsea primarily had developed into a working-class neighborhood and was home to many immigrants. Um, I just wanted to read a little clip from an article in the Daily News on January 10th, 1982, by John Lewis. It's a profile of Chelsea's past. He writes... In the 1930s and 40s, Chelsea was a neighborhood of immigrants, Irish, Italians, Yugoslavs, and Poles. Rosemary Lynch, a Chelsea resident for 46 years, said that she remembers it always, quote, as a beautiful middle-class neighborhood of working people. Many were stevedores who loaded and unloaded ships from Gansevoort, Little West 12th Streets to 23rd Streets on the Hudson River. Others were truckers, warehousemen, Carpenters and Coopers. And she's remembering here in the article the Chelsea of the 1940s, which was also a time of new residential development as well. It actually saw some of the very first urban renewal housing projects in the entire city, including the John Lovejoy Elliott Houses, which had been announced in 1939, but were stalled and they really wouldn't be finished until after World War II in 1947. The Elliott Houses include four 11- and 12-story apartment buildings with nearly 600 apartments. Those are located between 25th and 27th Streets and between 9th and 10th Avenues. And they're located actually just west of another development, uh, the Chelsea Houses, which were built about 15 years later in 1961 that include two buildings with more than 400 apartments. So that gradually then provided over a 1,000 affordable apartments for the neighborhood. Yes, and also in the 1960s, the New York City Housing Authority, NYSHA, Mm -hmm. would add more with the Robert Fulton House's 11 buildings constructed between West 16th and West 19th Streets and between 9th and 10th Avenues. 
this is a mix of high-rises and smaller buildings, and it would provide more than 900 additional apartments. And these are all New York City Housing Authority public housing developments. Yes, public housing run by the city for low to moderate income New Yorkers. So this is different than from another massive residential development that took place at about the same time. That was the Penn Station South Houses, or today simply called Penn South, which is comprised of 10 22-floor brick apartment buildings, which provide 2,800 apartments of various sizes. And this is located, no surprise, just south of Penn Station, or actually just south of the post office, between 23rd and 29th Streets, and between 8th and 9th Avenues. And how is Penn South different from the public housing developments in the area? Well, Penn South is a cooperative development. It was originally sponsored by the International Ladies' Garment Union, and it was pushed by them in the 1950s as a slum clearance project. Mm. Because by the 1950s, you know, cities around the country could get federal funds under the Housing Act of 1949 for urban renewal projects. Underscoring the fact that Chelsea, as a residential area, had been around for so long um, that many of these buildings were considered to be in slum quarters. Yeah, and who who's making that call? Robert Moses, for one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. This project was clearly controversial because of its size and the fact that it would, you know, displace thousands of residents from their homes here. And it would replace them with new middle-class housing that many of them could not afford. But despite the protests, it was completed. The federal government gave $12 million. The ILGWU uh, got the land in 1959, and it undertook then this operation of relocating the previous tenants on this land. But about 600 of these families who had been here were allowed to move into these new buildings. But it was very controversial. In the process, actually, of the development, the Grand Opera House that you mentioned Mm -hmm. was demolished, replaced by a structure that today houses Dallas (laughs) Barbecue. And RKO built a new movie theater next to it, just west of it. And that is today's SBA Theater, where you and I, by the way have hosted the Gannick Awards. Oh, that's right. Love that place. But I will underscore that Penn South still today does aim to provide affordable housing in the neighborhood. And there is a very long wait list to get into the co-op. And in fact, uh, the wait list is closed. I just checked that just out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. But to be clear, they are a, quote, limited equity co-op that's run under the city's supervision. So they actually receive a tax abatement in exchange for providing affordable apartments for moderate income residents. And it is set up so that when you sell your apartment in the co-op, you are not profiting handsomely from it as you would elsewhere in a private development. Some seismic shifts that are happening here in Chelsea in the mid-20th century, not just because of the construction of these apartment towers, but also New York is struggling to keep industry in the city during this moment. And there's a lot of industry in Chelsea. Yes. And how is the city supposed to keep it here? I mean, by the 1960s, the piers that you mentioned were no longer up to standards mm-hmm. you know, for modern shipping and industries were fleeing the city. But in a 
rather familiar storyline, gentrification and the rehabilitation of buildings was also starting to take place at the same time as it was in other neighborhoods. By the 1970s and obviously into the 80s, lovely old homes that we talked about being built back in the 1830s and 40s and 50s were being snatched up and repaired and beautified. And need I remind you, Tom, that these old warehouses, these abandoned places here on the west side would, of course, inspire something unique. New York's burgeoning nightlife nightclub scene here in the 1980s and 90s. Yeah, how many times did we wander over to the Roxy at 515 West 18th Street, which was west of 10th Avenue, and two blocks west of old Chelsea Square? I bet we never thought about that at the time. (laughs) Never once gave it a thought. The, The Roxy, by the way, had opened in the late 70s as a roller rink, and then it became a roller disco and obviously a dance club. And we knew it all too well in the 1990s and early 2000s. It closed in 2007 and has been replaced by a brand new luxury apartment building. And I checked it out, Greg. You can actually rent a two-bedroom there for just $13,000 a month. Can we go back to some of these other clubs that were over here? What, you had the tunnel, you had Sound Factory. Oh, the tunnel, or simply tunnel, as it was officially called, we call it the tunnel, was located inside the historic Chelsea Terminal Warehouse on West 27th between 11th and 12th Avenues. It's an amazing structure still there today. It once allowed trains to pull right into it and unload. Never noticed that there were tracks still on the dance floor. (laughs) And at the same time that we were over at the tunnel, there were other signs of rebirth along the piers right across 12th Avenue because in 1995, Chelsea Piers Sports and Entertainment Complex opened on Piers 59, 60, and 61 from uh, 17th Street up to 23rd Street. You remember what a big deal those were? And that was constructed. Well, but back to the clubs, um, because this is also (laughs) evidence of something else happening in the neighborhood when it's becoming more of a growing destination for New York's gay scene in the 90s. Yes, Chelsea would, of course, become one of Manhattan's most famous gay neighborhoods in the 1980s and 90s and early 2000s. This is the Chelsea that you and I were so familiar with, you Mm -hmm. know, the Chelsea of Elmo and Cafeteria, still there on 7th Avenue today. And the Big Cup. Right, Big Cup, which opened on 8th Avenue between 21st and 22nd Streets in 1994, uh, sometimes referred to as Gay Central Station. (laughs) That it was. And there were so many other notable, you know, gay-themed stores, where it seemed like an endless strip of gay-operated restaurants, some of which are still around. But I think that when Big Cup closed in 2005, it really did kind of feel like that Chelsea was gone, Mm -hmm. right? Or at least leaving the station. And another one was coming, more expensive, perhaps timed around the the opening of the first segment of the High Line in 2009. Mm -hmm. You know, Chelsea's center of gravity seemed like it was also drifting west toward Ninth Avenue. And that whole area, even farther west, would see incredible new residential development that continues to this day. And I must say that it's always been kind of arty over there in those warehouses. But I mean, today, it's really the center of the New York art world. Yeah, in fact, it's the Chelsea Gallery District or the Chelsea Arts District. 
which spans from 18th to 28th streets, between 10th and 11th, and really home to hundreds of galleries and studios. And so many of those are located inside old warehouses and storage buildings, printing plants, and many are part of the the West Chelsea Historic District, which was designated in 2008. So all of that is the complicated, joyful, and interesting mix that makes up the neighborhood of Chelsea today. And fortuitously, Greg, many of the historic structures that we've mentioned in today's show are still around today to visit and experience. Even Clement Clark Moore's seminary, bustling with students and open to visitors. Anybody can go in. I went in. They even let me in last week. Look for the entrance on West 21st Street. Drop off your ID and you get to walk around and um, just kind of take in Chelsea from that viewpoint because you're also higher. You're on the old elevation. You're up higher and you can imagine that you're standing on top of an old rolling hill on the old Chelsea estate. Please visit our website BoweryBoysHistory.com where I'll have a few images of these different eras of Chelsea history that we've discussed, including a few of these earliest days with the old Chelsea house, the home of Clement Clark Moore. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also find us on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter at BoweryBoys. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys with your small monthly contributions You make it possible for Greg and I to devote all of our time to making the Bowery Boys. As a thank you, we produce some audio extras, including the Bowery Boys takeout, and we'll soon be recording a takeout on our recollections of Chelsea in the 90s. We'd like to give a special shout out to new Patreon supporters, Kate B., Linda S., and Elvira R. from Manhattan. Andrea H. from Brooklyn, Amanda B. from Milwaukee, and additional patrons Miranda T., Barbara G., Catherine S., and Joshua W. Thank you all for supporting the Barry Boys podcast. Join that fabulous group of people over at patreon.com slash Boys. Make sure you're subscribed to The Gilded Gentleman, the Barry Boys spinoff podcast hosted by Carl Raymond. He has an interview with Kara Wallace, the author of the book To Marry an English Lord, the book which partially inspired Julian Fellows to develop Downton Abbey. So it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. She's on the show talking about her new book. So check that out by subscribing to The Gilded Gentleman, wherever you get your podcasts. We're also excited to be offering in-person and also virtual tours through Bowery Boys Walks. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com and see all the opportunities for you to walk through time. Thank you very much for joining us on this historical romp through the history of Chelsea. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Every day, our world gets a little more connected but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. 
Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.